I literally don't even get it. Christopher laughed. I'm good for him. That was actually kind of funny. Welcome to Christ in the Chaos, where a pastor's kid and a kid's pastor share their messy attempt at raising a Christ-centered family. We may not know what we're doing, but we are right in the thick of it. And this is how we're finding Christ in the Chaos. Welcome to Christ in the Chaos. I am Kathleen here with my husband, Joel. And we are also joined today by our brother-in-law, Jamerson Watson. Hey, hey everyone. I'm going to call you Christopher, but it's so weird. He changed his name on us. We want to call him by his actual professional name, but when we talk to Don't him- Don't dead name my brother-in-law. We, we call him Christopher. Uh, yes. So That's this is the- Christopher's great. Hopefully by now you guys all know him and love him as much as we do. This is the third episode in the series. It's taken us a little while to get to this. Because we're exhausted. Because COVID. But remember, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards recording this podcast eventually. All right. <laughs> All right. Today we are looking at the Be the Bridge 16 Bridge Building Tips for White People. Um, this can be found. Uh, they have a lot of paid curriculum, which... Sure is a great investment, but this is free at bethebridge.com if you want to look at it. If you just Google what I say, you will find it. Um, and today we are looking at uh, tips 11 through 16, sort of, except for we've already gone over 12 is what I'm looking at um, when I'm looking at this now. So we're going to skip 12 um, because we already talked about it and Joel decided he was exempt from it or something. But no, we did. We did talk about that one. Which one was 12? It's about equating your experiences visiting serving oh, yeah, I, I have something overseas to, i actually have something to say about that so i'm gonna hit we'll, we'll hit on it real quick but starting with number 11 do not chastise people of color or dismiss their message because they express their grief fear or anger in ways you deem inappropriate understand that historically we white people have silenced voices of dissent and lament with our cultural idea of niceness provide a space of people for people of color to wail cuss or even yell at you Jesus didn't hold back when he saw hypocrisy and oppression, and people of color shouldn't have to either. Man, has this become, I mean, I'm sure this has been relevant for all of time and history and space, but this feels so relevant to the last few months, last couple of months since we last did this podcast. Well, it's, it's one of those things where the problem, honestly, is not the way people are speaking. It's what they're speaking about, because well, you never- can protest the status quo any way you want, but the people who rely on the status quo for their livelihoods, their job, their self-esteem, they're going to fight back and say, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it differently no matter how you do it because it's not the the form, it's the message they're, they're really against. So here's my question for Christopher. Christopher, Joel and I are a little late on the uptake of, you know, racial justice in general um, and have really only had like a really keen eye on it since... Like all of the very, the big, pro- oh, don't give me that look. My you know it's My sister's been true. lecturing me about racial yeah. justice for years. I said, we have not been on the boat. Um, now, the protests have gotten, you know, there's been property damage and there's been violence. Um, but I imagine you've been a part of quite a few um, totally nonviolent, peaceful things. Was that deemed the right way in the past to protest this sort of thing? I don't, honestly, I think. There's been no time in U.S. history that I can recall that it's been deemed appropriate. Uh, someone posted recently a uh, cartoon, and I 
I've been trying to verify whether it's actually from the 1960s or not. I think I have been going through the process with the exact same cartoon, trying to see if I can verify it. Go ahead. Sorry. Yes, because we definitely should verify information. And even if the cartoon itself was more recent, it was supposed to be kind of in the, in the, the zeitgeist of like the 1960s. Like it's still applicable where it's like Dr. King is standing talking to a reporter and the reporter um, is essentially asking Dr. King about what's going on in the environment. And so the cartoon has like buildings burning, someone laying on the ground, clearly it's been either knocked out or a gunshot. And the idea behind it is that even in the 1960s, while Dr. King and the kind of broader civil rights movement was moving forward with nonviolent protests, there was, people were still harping on the, and I don't, obviously we don't know an exact number, like, let's just say for the sake of argument, 10%, right? Which I don't even think is accurate. Yeah. The 10% protesters are actually engaging in what we would deem like not, not, not nonviolent protests, right? So you have looting, you have rioting, you have, you know, confrontations with law enforcement. And the idea is that like that same painting with a broad brush of 10% of folks representing 100% of folks isn't new. That was happening also 50, 60 years ago as well. So I just, I just, I would love for someone to actually verify that to see if that cartoon was actually from the mid 1960s, which it seems to be. And you can, it's interesting. I don't know if the cartoon is real, but I know I have seen like the news reports, the newspaper headlines talking about the violent protesters in the South. And then you can watch the videos of the violent protesters walking very calmly towards police dogs and fire hoses. Well, it's, I mean, I I literally had one of these conversations today with an, I'm not even giving a friend, I, a, a person that I respect, let's put it that way, where they were like, they there's this kind of like glorification glorification of Martin Luther King Jr., who, I mean, did outwardly ask for peaceful protests, but it's not like the civil rights movement happened in perfect peace without any property damage or violence like it's just such a like uh what's the word whitewashed feels like a terrible word for it but maybe it's actually the perfect word for yeah, a whitewashed version <laughs> um version of the civil rights movement so and like we have you know 40 how old would it, no more like 30 years later when i would have been like entering school um everybody had this view it was like already this kind of very rosy view of what had happened and um, it's interesting talking to my mom because my mom um, went to like an early segregated high school and my dad went to an all white school for high school right before segregation. And their experiences growing up are like, like night and day about how they experienced the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, oh. Uh, oh, hold on. What about Colin Kaepernick? I just want to say on the record that I called at the time. I was like, well, how would you want him to protest? <laughs> It was like before I even had like any awareness of this stuff. I'm like, no, this feels like he's using his platform for to yeah. make a good point. And I know people don't like Kaepernick for a bunch of other reasons, but I, di- I didn't have any baggage with him. So it felt like a good idea for him to like do the most peaceful, non-aggressive thing in the world to make a very important point that a lot of mm-hmm. people paid attention to. How do you wait? How do you feel about Kaepernick and that that kind of whole? Do you have any feelings about him? Yeah, I don't honestly. I think that I I'm not carrying any like kind of like negative baggage toward Kaepernick. So in my eyes, I'm like, oh, like this guy didn't do anything wrong. Like the the only thing that I don't fault him for personally, but there are some people who kind of question when he got the opportunity. Uh, I think it was like maybe about 
10 months ago to try out for a team. Um, he kind of made some demands. He was like, no, I want to do it at this stadium instead of this stadium. Some people thought he like was setting it up to make more of a publicity statement. But mm-hmm. I, and I don't actually have any feeling on that either way. But like, I think in general, he set out to do the right thing, right? Which was that he sat down originally. He had a conversation with, I believe, either a former SEAL or Green Beret. They had a conversation. That individual told him that it would be more respectful to kneel. So then he started kneeling and that wasn't good enough, right? Yeah. And so I think that you we have to look no further than, uh, what was it, last week, the game between the Houston football team and the Kansas City football team where all of the players and coaches locked their arms in solidarity and you can hear massive boos from the audience. So then my question is, was it ever really about the flag or was it about them protesting something that you actually think wasn't important? Or that protesting something that affects your life. Well, it's it's, there wasn't... it's a referendum on the life that we yeah. are all living. And that's why people I think are so uncomfortable with this. It's like, I just don't understand why, like, a, especially Christians don't have the humility to, like, look at this. Like, I can look at this and be like, wow, I did not do a good enough job for the last, like, decade of my life as an adult. Like, I just didn't. And I'm like, I guess I can, like, really work on doing better. And you no, know, it still baffles me that I don't understand why people are, don't see it that way. It's scary. I don't get it. Change is, I just had this conversation with someone online. Change is scary and it's hard and you have to change. You have to be different. Your life will be different and you don't know how it'll be different. I think it'll be different better personally because the more people who participate in society, you know, just a numbers game, the better things will be. That's been the historical trend. but. It's scary. I like my life. I don't want it to change. And it's hard to say, not just that your life will change, but that you have to affirmatively do something that is changed. You have to change your behavior and how you act and how you live. It's scary to a certain subset of people. Um, I mean. And also, people have been raised in certain beliefs and certain attitudes and certain ways they think the world should work. And changing people is is hard. I don't think that's an excuse not to change or to listen to the truth. And you got to step up. But I think it, it should come as a challenge to people who want to change things to know that no matter how little the thing you want to change is or how big or whatever it is, if you want to change something, you're going to hit resistance. Hmm. Uh, do you have a last word on the right way to protest, Christopher? Uh, I guess my last word is the right way to protest is the way that gets um, that affects change, basically. So um, if that is, you know, um, standing in front of the courthouse, then that's that. If that's marching down the street, if that is blocking the highway, like whatever people have to do, as long as they're not like directly impacting other people's safety. Right. Like there are questions about whether, you know, these ways of protest, like blocking highways or whatever. Yeah. They're very, like, they're very, I think, legitimate moral questions about that type of protest. But the question then goes back to, well, then what type of protest is acceptable? Caveat. Remember, graffiti is obnoxious. It's vandalism. But you can't do violence against inanimate objects. Graffiti is not violence. Opposite of giving someone the last word, but good job, Joel. Sorry, I just he made a point, and I thought it was important to remind people that shooting people is violence, 
graffiti is obnoxious. It's not violent. Exactly. Right. Number 12 is don't attempt to equate your experiences visiting, serving, or living overseas to your experience with people of color in America. And this is the one that we were going to skip, but I just wanted to throw out this story. I don't think we should skip it. Just well, we, we don't have, have a lot to say. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, the my story is that one time I got up in front of our church um, to talk about um, being welcoming at Christmas time, and was trying to explain. I had like a little bit of a platform and tried to explain what it felt like to be a non-Christian walking into a church, and like that we get a lot of people like that um, that get pulled along on Christmas Eve. And that here's the ways that we can help them. And I got kind of an email from somebody that was like, we know what it's like to go to church on Christmas Eve that is not your normal church. And they were like, it's scary to be there among other people that you don't know. But like, like, like they were like, how could you say we don't know what it's like? And I'm like, you realize being a Christian that goes from one church to another is different than being a non-church going non-Christian coming into church, right? Like they had no concept that, their experience didn't equate. And I was just like, oh, people really can't do this. They really can't imagine what it's like to have a different experience than their own. Did you, did you have anything to say on that one? I think we, I want to say we talked about it, but did you have anything to add on that? Like kind of equating experiences? No, I mean, I just think that like here, um, there's something um, that I really love that the author says. They say being a person of color in America um, includes a different set of dynamics. White supremacy is not unique to America, however, or it says, but rather a worldwide phenomenon. And so I'm just reminded of the time that I went to Russia, which I actually will say, well, it was Russia at the time. Um, I actually will say that um, I love the people there. Like, it was, it was such an amazing experience. Hmm. It have an interaction. The other thing to say is, I guess, is that this was around 20 years ago. So not that so much has changed over 20 years, but um, but I actually, like a group of students, yelled the N-word at me when I was in, this, when I was in uh, maybe it was actually the former Soviet Union at the time. But anyway, it, it actually, like, I froze for a second and my host, my host brother, who, you know, I was staying with at the time, um, he was like, no, 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 come on, come on, come on. And so he was trying to keep me from engaging them. And I wasn't necessarily going to engage them. But since I stopped and froze, I think he thought I was going to react. Um, so all of that to then say, like, this isn't, again, it isn't a phenomena that's unique to the United States of America. But if I am living, if I am born and raised and bred and breathing and living in the United States of America, this is the racism here that I'm dealing with. So when folks say, well, it's better than this other place. Well, not for me on a daily basis, living my existence. As a, as I don't a- live there. <laughs> yeah, and even if it's better, that's like, like when you, when you break a toe and somebody's like, well, at least your leg's not broken. You're like, yeah, but my toe still hurts. Like I'd like, I can control my toe. I can't fix someone else's broken leg. I can, you know, take care of my toe. Like this is our country. And yes, it is worse in other places, but we, it's, it's our, a unique brand. This here, is though. our house and the mess is in our house. And even if other houses, we're not hoarders, you still need to clean up the mess. He says equating things. Number 13 is don't underestimate the impact of your words. You have the power to inflict real lasting damage in these conversations. Be careful. Melon is not a protective mel. Sorry. Melanin is not a protective shield. Decide if you want to be a bomb or a battering ram. Bomb. Not bomb. Bomb. 
Bon, hey, just I'm just clarifying this. B A L M, not B O M B. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, because a bomb and a battering ram are pretty similar. Here's the thing, though. Most it's like decide whether you want to be. But I will say that if I become hurtful in one of these conversations, it's not because I don't even think it's because I lost control of my temper or lost control of the conversation. It's because I, I've been, I'm just not informed enough, and I'm like I'm trying to like catch up and figure out what the right things to do and say is, but I don't feel like, I don't know. I, this is just a hard one because for me, it's, it wouldn't be an intentional yeah. thing, but that does not mean I could not say something terribly hurtful in one of these conversations. I think we can talk to each other in a way that is kind, that understands because I, and all of you who know me will be surprised to find out that I've been on the other end of this where I have been accused of saying something that I didn't intend to say because my word choice was poor or my thoughts were rambling too fast and I wasn't really thinking about what I was saying. I was just kind of talking. Hey, I mean, you're... Go on. Wasn't given the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> okay, fair enough there. Um, and, you know, it, you're like, it automatically, it can just turn you off where people are like, oh, you shouldn't say that. And it's like, well, that's, you know, that's not what I meant. Like, stop twisting but, my words. But why and it's, is your comfort in that situation the most important thing I'm somebody says you I'm shouldn't saying... say that you should stop and say could you would you be willing to explain to me why i can't say that i or why think there I are ways to approach idiots that are better than others you being the idiot i'm the idiot okay, just clarifying and that. if you want them on your team and we do because right um we want everyone to change mm, you're you're reframing the conversation around what the white dude needs i also think that the white dude needs to understand that people when they're correcting him or her don't they're not necessarily again they you don't twist what they're saying either like i think we all need to have a little bit of humility and a little bit of patience with each other in changing and support each other in changing how we talk um why don't you say instead we need to what if you said you think that this would go faster if because i think that you don't we don't need to like fair enough but i do think the process of change would go faster if you could if you spoke the language to people, that's what I think. Not his, it's not a person of color's responsibility to learn your language so that they can speak to you in your way. Sorry, Christopher, I want to hear from you. <laughs> um, when you were having, have you had, if you were having a, com- a complicated conversation about race, has your experience been um, that people are more hurtful when they lose control of their temper or when they, are misinformed or don't fully understand the nuances of a situation. I think, I think it can happen in both situations. I think that people are naturally defensive, which as a kind of species that makes sense. Like it's a defense mechanism. Um, It's our way of protecting ourselves from like hearing things or like receiving things that uh, make us uncomfortable at the kind of like uh, least the, the, the not important Uh, end of the spectrum, all the way to actually a defensiveness of protecting ourselves from actual harm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But I think like lions. Yes, exactly. Right. So it's it's a holdover of that fight or flight. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I think you're you're right. I think I think attacks on our character. Right. Like if we hold ourselves up to be like moral people. And I think that like when we come to Christ, like 
that we essentially set ourselves up to be that type of person. We're saying, and it's not that we're no longer above a reproach because all of us fall short, right? Yes. And at the same time, if we are setting a certain standard and we're supposed to mirror that standard for other people, if someone is calling into question the very standard that we think we've set through, like being endowed with God's Holy Spirit, then our, our natural defense mechanism, as opposed to being humility, which is what the Bible calls for, is to go on the, def the defensive and defend ourselves against these untoward attacks, right? So I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad, well, I mean, obviously it's not a good thing. I'm not saying it's <laughs> a natural instinct. I'm just saying that we need to push through that. And that's why, you know, we lean on other believers. We lean on our social groups. We lean on like prayer. Like we lean not on our own understanding, but the understanding that we've been given through like the, the word, if that makes sense. Yeah. See, that's just a better, he just said what I said, but he just said it much better is we need to understand the language other people are using and, and break through that and work through to get through to them so that we can be helpful. What I hear you saying is that like it's the responsibility of I guess my whole thing is like that that what what I am trying to do is take the hurt on myself in these situations so that like that I can level the playing ground a playing field a little bit. Um like if somebody wants, if somebody is calling me out for something, for the way I put something or the thing that I did, like I'm willing to take on a little bit more of the hurt than I would in a, in a maybe typical conversation because of the existing power dynamic. And I don't, I don't Absolutely. know how we can really like move past this or learn from each other. If the people who are in power aren't willing to take on some of the, the actual, like to willingly take on some of the pain, which is also like, based in the gospel. Like it's a, it's a kind of, of sacrificial like way of loving someone to, to take on um, more than your share of the pain when you're on an evil playing field by like bringing yourself below and letting yourself be vulnerable in that way. Christopher, did no. you have any last words on that? No, I was just going to like, just magnify what Kathleen is saying. Like the Bible explicitly says that the strong should bear the infirmities of the weak. And I think that we don't, we shouldn't twist that. What it's suggesting, I think in today's like language and context is that the privilege should bear the infirmity of those who are targeted around whatever that oppression is. And so I think you're 100% absolutely right, uh, Kathleen. Like if we saw ourselves as being a reflection of the people in front of us, which are folks of color, which are women, which are, you know, folks who are in poverty, you know, so on and so forth. That is the best way for us to then react because we're not going to react to ourselves. Like it's, it's like that whole adage that Paul talks about, you know, and this isn't the example that he uses, but he's essentially asking if the, what the right hand, um, if the right hand had a knife, with the right hand then cut the left ear off. Like it wouldn't make any sense because we're of one body. So I think if folks who are privileged around identities like would shift the conversations and like be silent sometimes. It doesn't mean that your voice isn't important. It just means that in this particular moment, hearing from folks who historically haven't been heard from is more important, is the priority. It's not more important, it's just a priority at that moment. Number 14, don't forget, racism is our problem. Our people created and sustained it, and now it's our job to dismantle it. Just for context, by the way, this is for white people, so that's what, the, what she's referring to. Only by the grace and mercy of God are people of color willing to walk this road with us towards racial healing and reconciliation. Honor that reality in how you treat those with whom you want to build bridges. This is framed in terms of problem, 
but I, for me, it's, it's, um, the way I'm really trying to think about it is that I want more for myself and more for my kids. And by more, I want them to have a broader experience of the world. I want them to have bigger empathy and to understand more people's experience and to experience the kingdom in a bigger way. And to do that, we have to dismantle or be a part of the dismantling of racism. I think it's bigger than that. I I think that it's not a matter necessarily of our kids having a bigger, broader That's like experience. I know, but I think it's more of there's a crack in the foundation on our house. And you'll hear people say, well, I didn't own slaves. I'm not racist. I treat people all equally. You know, it's like, well, okay, great. You're not the one who cracked the foundation. It was the previous owners. I get it. They ran their car into the house before you even owned it. But now it's your house. Now you live here and there's a crack in the foundation. And if you don't fix it, the house will fall down. And if you do fix it, then your house will be stronger. And I, I really do think it's a matter of building not just a world where our children can have a better experience, but a better world. Like their lives will be better if the world is more inclusive. So the other thing, too, is I, I disagree with you on the idea that the house will fall down. Because I believe in an end where God wins and where justice wins. So I don't believe the house will fall down. The question is, am, am I going to be a part? Am I going to well, be in, in the house the United when it States. stands? I'm talking about the United States. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm, the kingdom the, but, will but find a way. Just like, the thing is, like, this is going to go in this direction. Eventually, there will be justice. Eventually, there will be a good end. And the question is, were you a part of the people building up, bringing the justice? Or were you a part of the people who were resisting? And I want... I want I want to be very clear on on what side of that I'm on. Um, Christopher, <laughs> what side are you? <laughs> on? I will say this is a hard one to bring him into because this is a very like on white people thing um, of like, hey, take responsibility for your own stuff. So it's weird to put you on the spot for you to say, yeah, white people take responsibility for your own stuff. Um, but did you have any response to number fourteen? No, no. I mean, absolutely. Like, that's 100%. And I think that, like, yes, that question is directed toward um, white folks. But and I know I'm always using these comparison and we're not comparing comparing identities because this isn't like some sort of oppression Olympics. But I look <laughs> at my identity as being a man. And so yeah. when like I used to be part of an organization in college called Men Against Violence, so MAV for short. And so the idea behind MAV was that People like the idea of men being against violence was like almost such a novel concept. Like we used to, you know, say kind of in jest, it's like, you know, uh, saying, you know, something like so benign, like women against shopping. Like it just <laughs> like in people's minds, it just kind of throws them off. And they're like, what men against violence? Like because the automatic assumption is that like men are supposed to be like strong and tough and like protective and like all of that then manifests itself in violence. But that's not the that's not the the image of manhood that we necessarily need to personify. And so I think it's the same thing for white people, like white people as, you know, saviors, as conquerors, as imperialists. Like it's up to white people to change the kind of like conversation and the dynamic of how like some white people and all white systems have existed in the world. Number 15. Don't get defensive when you are called out for any of the above. When a person of color tells you that your words, tone, behavior are racist, oppressive, triggering, you stop. Don't try to explain yourself. Don't become passive aggressive or sarcastic. Don't leave in a huff. It may be helpful, however, to inconspicuously step outside, go to the restroom and take a deep breath. 
Remain cognizant of the dynamics of white fragility and take note of how it usually shows up in you. And when you get defensive or leave the conversation, you reinforce to the person of color and the white people that white people are not safe people with which to have a conversation. This is unfair because it requires me to do some work on myself and improve myself. And I find that difficult (laughs) because... I am always being reasonable, I, I, and I always have rational explanations for what I'm doing. This is one of those big tough shit moments, Demand. I know. I'm just saying that uh, if if you're listening to this one and going, well, I, I am reasonable. Like, no, I'm the king of I am reasonable, so you got no room. This is the which of these applies to us most Olympics, and I win the gold here. So you just, it, it's so hard. I get it. It's hard, but we got to do it. You've got to just, just, you know. Gird your loins there, find the courage Gird to be wrong. your loins. I, it, it's, Christopher, I have a question for you. Does this feel like it's getting better? This podcast? No. Does, <laughs> do you think that people are understanding this a little bit more? I do, but I, and, I shouldn't say but, and I also think that the natural, like, gut instinct to turn defensive has not necessarily gotten better. I just think people are more cognizant of it, if that makes sense. Yep. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, actually, I mean, I think the perfect example is the whole Amy and Christian Cooper situation, who are not related, but it was an incident that took place, I think, about a year ago. It was uh, happened in Central Park. It is that a- the birder? Huh? Is that the birder? Yes, that's exactly right. So it's where a guy calls out a woman and not necessarily anything related to race, but he called her out on, I believe it was allowing her dog to go to the bathroom and not cleaning up after the dog. Uh, I think it was the dog was off the leash. Oh, that's what it was. uh, Which I think is an important point because a dog pooping in the park and you don't clean up after it, you could kind of make an argument that, come on, dude, how's that hurting you? Um, but I read an interview with him where he said, no, the reason I even said anything is because dogs chase and kill birds. And my whole thing is birds. And so as a bird enthusiast, um, I felt I was like, hey, lady, you need to put your dog on the leash because it's going to kill birds. No, that makes a lot of sense. But I think what got in the way with her white fragility, like the fact that he was sitting here questioning her on what she assumed was like something completely appropriate to do because she was operating in her privilege, right? Like when she was called on that, her defense mechanism kicked in. And as a result, she did something completely vile. I'm not saying that like her defensiveness like equated to like a white person's defensiveness if a Mm -hmm. person calls them out on something and they just like stonewall or they just walk out of the room. I'm not equating those things at all. I'm saying that they manifest themselves from the same place. Yeah. And it it did end up somewhere terrible. And it's that same instinct. Uh, Like when I watch her, like threatening that man on the phone. She went off the rails. Yeah. But it's that same instinct of, I'm not doing anything wrong. How dare you? Like trying to flip it. I need to justify myself. So I'm going to flip it on you and make you sound, which is why I thought it was important to note that. It wasn't just somebody who couldn't mind their own business because the dog was right. pooping where it shouldn't. It was somebody who had a vested interest. And in I what? don't, I mean, you know, respectability politics are BS. But in this case, like it really was somebody who had information she didn't, was trying to educate her to make the world better for everyone else. Right. Yes, her life was going to be, her life wouldn't even be harder. No. 
you know I'm a big dog on a leash person. I so. know. <laughs> uh, the what, the one thing I was going to say is that, and I think we talked about this in a previous episode, that my fragility is literal fragility. I do not get like defensive, um, that like the way Joel does in the sense that I don't like fight back or try to justify myself, but I but I cry, which I have now learned is like the worst thing that a white lady can do. Um, and so like I get this is the one that just it it intimidates me about um stepping into like this movement um is that when i get called out i don't want to leave the conversation i don't want to um not acknowledge and honor the pain that i've caused um and i don't want to make it about me by crying but like i'm sorry crying is a physical response that it's impossible to have a conversation I with you when you're never, crying i have never like that's just how I've been when I was I'm a, aware. I remember at camp have a lot of fun when I was a little kid and somebody called me out for something and I cried and I have never it's so embarrassing. I don't like that part of myself, but I have never been able to get that under control. So But I understand why people do it because it's impossible to argue with you when you're crying. <laughs> well, yeah. No, I, I know I know the effect it has on you. So I know how intense it would be in this conversation. Like if we were at my job actually, this happened. A lady came. Oh my gosh. I was talking about um my friend and I were just having a nasty conversation in voice and this lady followed me back to church and brought me into a room and uh, talked to me for a long time and prayed with me and for me for a long time. And she left and I was bawling like crazy, not be not out of defensiveness, but out of like this, this emotional conversation I had with this random lady at Jimboy's. And my whole office came in like down on her for a second. Like they were about to like throw down this lady. And I was like, I'm fine, but the effect of my tears on every single one of my coworkers well, was imagine insane. that you walk up on a situation and there are two people of of equal race and gender, it doesn't matter what they are, they're the same person. Yeah, you, but you, one of them's talking loudly or even yelling and the other one's crying. Like just our innate humanness, we're gonna try to defend the one who's crying. It's a great weapon. Careful how you use it. Well, it's just like I just see myself like <laughs> Being like, no, no, it's okay. Listen to that person. It's just, it's gonna be a mess. I just foresee it being a mess. But I'm, I promise, whoever that future person is, I'm really gonna try to do the right thing. I just, I'm crying because I can't help it. Uh, Christopher, do you have any last words on me being defensive or Kathleen's wives in- crying to win arguments? <laughs> Although I'm sure that's uh, not- no. Just uh, carry a copy of this podcast with you so that uh, you can hand it to the person. <laughs> so you can hand it to the person who just recorded you and put it on YouTube. Like, oh, I swear. man. All right, number 16, don't give up. This will be hard, lifelong process. Take care of yourself. Find community. Take time out to disconnect and process. Abide in the word. Pray, laugh, cry, yell, sit quietly, sing, dance. Remember that our hope is in Jesus who is present and who sees all and who grieves more deeply than your uh than you over racial oppression. Then come back and work hard tomorrow. People of color don't get to step out of their skin and walk away the way we can. Remain even when it's harder than you imagined it could be in solidarity. Um, This is so on point, given that we just took like a three-month break from... Because it was hard for us. Because it was really hard. Um, Not not this topic, but because the podcast was hard. So we just (laughs) stepped away until we could get it back together and let like i i had some guilt building up i wanted to do the podcast but i like promised myself that we wouldn't do another episode until we finished this series because i wanted to be committed to the series but i was able to just step away from it and 
homeschool my kids and cry in a corner for a couple months because I was tired. And like, I know that's not everybody else's situation. Like people of color don't get to do that. Um, So this one, I mean, like we just lived it out. We just took not a day break, not a week break, but like months break. I mean, we were educating ourselves. We were doing stuff, but the thing that we it's committed quarantine. to do. I actually have nope. no idea how long our break was. Yeah. Um, it could have been a week. It could have been a month. Do you have any uh, response? Uh, well, actually, I, I'd really like to hear um, what you have to say about the fatigue of all of this as from the perspective of a person of color. Yeah, I mean, I just think that the way that white supremacy operates, like folks of color never get a break. Like you're almost always on. So whether even when you are trying to retreat away, right? Like, so it's like, oh, well, I'm going to get off of social media for a while or oh, I'm going to stop watching TV or like, you know, whatever like level of engagement you're currently like tapped into. Like when you try and step back from that, you're still in regular life. So you're still going to the grocery stores and like seeing products that are geared toward white folks and not geared toward people of color. Or you see sections with the food that you identify with and eat in the ethnic section. Or you go and you try and, you know, get a taxi. Now, obviously, this is the case in D.C. and like other major metropolitan areas and not necessarily doing COVID. But the point is, even when you try and step away from like, oh, I'm not going to engage, you're forced to engage because white supremacy is a system, right? It's not a, it's an ideology. It's not about like individual, like, oh, what if I stop shopping on Amazon, I'll avoid white supremacy or (laughs) I stop going to the laundromat. You know what I'm saying? I won't, I won't engage white supremacy. That's just not how it works being a person of color in the U.S. So. Well, and especially for, it makes it hard. It makes it really hard for me. Uh, It makes it complicated for people on our side of it who can step back to recognize that we can't step back because obviously people of color are always going to be people of color because that's not something you can change. Um, But white supremacy is an alive thing that is fighting for its life right now. And it is going, it's never going to give up because if it gives up, it dies. If I give up, the world isn't as good as it could be, but my life doesn't change much. That is literally so, the whole problem, Joel. I yes. know. <laughs> but that means we have to recognize that white supremacy is never going to quit until it's dead. And people of color can't quit because otherwise white supremacy will will kill them, literally and figuratively. And so even when, and it, it, I get it, it's tiring and it's hard to keep up when it's no longer novel or new, right? The protests are going on. They're not on the news every night because they're no longer novel. It's hard to keep that attention there. But, you know, it's kind of every day got to wake up and say, okay, today I'm going to, you know, work hard, love my family, and I'm not going to do nothing about white supremacy. This, this, the relentlessness is one of the things I think I've really internalized in this last few months that um, you, you don't ever get to walk away. And um, one of the things, especially during COVID, and I do understand why it comes out of people's mouths, which people say all the time, like, I'm just so tired. You can hear them start to go, I'm so tired of hearing of the news about hearing about this pandemic. And then they start to say, and all these, and then they stop and they're like, how do I say this politically? And they're like, protests. And I will, like, my discipline has been like, people of color do not get to walk away from this. Like, I'm sorry you're tired, but 
this is like one, like a four months of your life. They've been dealing mm-hmm. with it every time they go to this, you know, and I like, yeah. that's the thing I like lay out now. That's kind of like my discipline response to that because I, you can't, you can hear them processing that they know exactly what they're saying. And that's the thing that like in the short term, I have decided to call out every single time. Like, no, we do not get to say we are tired of the protests or tired of hearing about the protests because that, that too bad. That's it. You're not even out there. Get over it. <laughs> Christopher, do you have any last words on that or any last words at all? We'll give you the the last word. So as you all were talking, I thought like the perfect like um, embodiment of what this one is saying. And it also is applicable to all the other ones, which is where um, Peter uh, in first Peter three is talking about suffering for doing good. And so he essentially says, like, um, it's better for us to suffer for doing good than it is to just operate in our own comfort. Like that's a paraphrase, right? Um, but he's saying that like Christ died that we might be alive in the spirit. And so like we, for whatever reason, have created this concept of Western US, you know, Christianity, which I think is allowing white supremacy to creep in. I would argue that it's already been there, but like, let's just say for the sake of like the gospel itself, there is nothing like white supremacist within the gospel. But we've allowed it to creep in by making this assumption that for whatever reason, we're supposed to be comfortable as Christians in the U.S. And I say specifically to like white Christian brothers and sisters, like the idea that, you know, you're supposed to operate in comfort. And so every time you're uncomfortable, it's like an attack of the enemy. It's like, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, In only- those moments when we're uncomfortable, that's what the that's what the actual scripture call it says that we're going to be uncomfortable for doing good. So I would exhort people to not feel exhausted right through the process of like that kind of suffering and feeling like you're just being exhausted by everything that's going on, but actually take courage in that that like Christ went through the exact same process that we're going through in the attempt to like make himself anew, right? Yeah, and he says in Matthew 10, right? Christ Christ says I didn't come to make you comfortable. I didn't come to bring you peace. Right. Following me is going to be hard. Following me is going to be dangerous. Well, I think so. I, I don't think that there's any need to edit that out because I think <laughs> I just piggyback on what Joel is saying, which is where Christ says, come to me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So your rest should be in Christ Jesus. The expectation shouldn't be that the world is going to give you relief or reproach in some way. Like that's where you're actually challenged to live out the gospel. And if living out the gospel is actually the embodiment in some ways of like going through that same suffering that Christ went through, like at the other end, that's where your joy is going to come from. That's where your satisfaction is going to come from. I think that, you know, Joel's starting with the, you know, Dr. King uh, quote at the beginning where he talked about the, you know, arc of the moral universe is long but bends towards justice. I think that, you know, uh, Dr. King also saying that, you know, um, I see the promised land and I may it may not necessarily make it. Um, I think that we in the same way, if we look toward like in my lifetime, I don't think racism is going to end. But if I can actually work against white supremacy, I can actually see a future where great grandkids, great, great grandkids, great, great grandkids. Hopefully it's not too far out, but it'll be in that like spirit of brotherhood that Dr. King talked about, which I think is an embodiment of what Christ calls us to be as well. On that note, Christopher, can you pray us out? Absolutely. 
Lord God, we just thank you for this opportunity to just come together. Uh, Lord God, no matter how long it's been, Lord Jesus, it seems like just yesterday that we came together in fellowship and talked about uh, how you uh, require of us, you call us uh, to uh, engage one another in the spirit of justice. Lord God, we just thank you for just loving us. We just ask that you just touch all of our brothers and sisters out there who are um, suffering at the hands of white supremacy. We just ask that you just allow them to look to the hills from which come at their help. And we just ask that um, our brothers and sisters who are white uh, in this country begin to like uh, allow the scales to open from their uh, fall from their eyes and realize that um, even if they aren't um, every day operating in like the the direct um, result of white supremacy that they are at the very least benefiting from it. And so it is incumbent upon them to fight for it because in the same way that you called us and the children of Israel to fight for justice, um, in the same way you're calling each of our brothers and sisters to lock arms with us. And so even if they're not going out and protesting every day, or even if they're not writing letters to like representatives, or uh, even if they're not talking to their children about uh, racism, um, that at some form throughout the day, they will allow their light to shine before others and uh, so that uh, the world may see them and glorify you. And so we just honor you. We thank you. and We praise you on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please take a second to rate and subscribe to this podcast. It helps others to find us and to be hashtag blessed by the discussions that we have here. If you want to contact us, you can reach us on Instagram at Christ in the Chaos, or you can email us at Christ in the Chaos Pod at gmail.com. Until next week, we hope you have a peaceful week. But even if you don't, remember that you can find us and Jesus waiting for you in the chaos.